Trigger warning, we will be discussing cannibalism and sexual perversions in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout space and time, there have been unexplained medical mysteries and clinical conundrums. To nurse practitioners with backgrounds in emergency medicine, law enforcement, forensics, and emergency preparedness try to provide explanation through speculation along the way. This is We'll Continue to Monitor. It is June 1981 in Paris. Issei Sagawa has invited a young woman over to his apartment for dinner. What she doesn't know is that she is the intended meal for the evening. Join Ben and I with special guest Tina from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse as we dissect tonight's case, Issei Sagawa, the Kobe Cannibal. Welcome to We'll Continue to Monitor, Tom. We are here with Tina from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Tina, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about this. We are happy to have you. And I said uh, when we were on your show, we wanted to pick a good show to indoctrinate you into We'll Continue to Monitor. And we felt, what better than Kobe Cannibal? Yeah, Tom was like, yeah, Ben thought of you immediately when he heard of this. And I was like, oh, first of all, how does Ben know me so well? That's kind of scary. <laughs> had you heard of this person before tonight? I had not. All right. Well, hopefully there are lots of other listeners out there that have not. We are going to introduce them to an interesting person. And I don't know how else to say that. So Sagawa <laughs> was born April 26, 1949 in Kobe, Japan. His parents were wealthy. He was about four foot nine and skinny. And so because of that, he really kind of felt that he was too repulsive to attract women. Sagawa, his whole life, dealt with developmental delays due to being born prematurely. And so that kind of colored how he lived the rest of his life. As a child, he got really into literature. He loved reading and he just could not get enough of the stories that were told to him by his family and books that he was reading. However, along the way, he became fascinated with cannibalism. He attributed this to an early playing with an uncle who said, hey, I'm going to lower you into a pot and cook you and eat you like as a joke, playing around with him as a kid. And most kids would just laugh and think, oh, my uncle's playing around. Issei thought to himself, that's not a bad idea, apparently, because he started to look into it more. And as a matter of fact, quoted himself reading Hansel and Gretel and making the mm sound when they talked about eating other people. And this is as a child. Which, Tina, if you think about it in hindsight, Hensel and Gretel is kind of a story that, yeah, I mean, it does involve humans being eaten. Yeah, I remember as an adult going back and revisiting some of the nursery rhymes and like the stories that you would hear as a child and trying to, I, I, I got a, a book of children's you know, stories and I go, I go to read it to my young, you know, three, four year old son. And I remember just being appalled, like, wait a minute, what? I, this is terrible. I'm not, I, those stories are scary. And I, I don't understand where they came from or who thought it was a good idea to be filling children's heads with this horror and, you know, cannibalism. <laughs> I mean, really? I would actually tell listeners it's two levels. So first of all, go back and read Brothers Grimm. Now, it is terrifying what they're writing about. Historians have actually come out and said the reason they think a lot of those stories were written that way is because that's actually some things like when they talk about selling children, that was actually fairly common in 1500s Europe. If I couldn't afford my family, I would sell my kid to somebody that could. 
And so they wrote about things that they were seeing around them. So that was one thing I heard. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's I, I thought the same thing, Miss Tina, was how did they get to this point? Well, that's why. Also, the second thing I would say, a lot of the stories you are reading, if you are a parent and you buy a fairy tale book, those are the updated, modern, edited versions. The original stories are way more graphic and worse. So if you think what you read now was terrible, try and find a, an original story and you will have nightmares about what those children had to have lived through. So with his cannibalistic fantasies, he blamed this on the media's representation of Western women like Grace Kelly. And for him, he says, quote, it's simply a fetish and that he, quote, can't fathom why everyone doesn't feel this urge to eat to consume other people. I think this is actually a really good time to bring up to our listeners since we didn't say at the beginning. Issei Sagawa is still alive. So when we say he says or quote, it's because somebody asked him this question recently and he is still saying it. So to give yourself a little more chill, if you're listening to this and you're already terrified because somebody killed and ate somebody, this person is not only alive, he is free and walking around. Yeah, which we'll get into that here shortly because it's quite the quite an interesting turn. So when he was 23, he found a tall German woman in Tokyo. He had he developed his plan. He wanted to consume her flesh. He wanted to feed into this fantasy of his. So he broke into her bedroom. But because of his short stature, uh, he was pretty well easily tackled and wrestled to the ground by her. Now, he had told police that his intention was to rave her because he felt like, I guess, that would be better than cannibalism. And then the charges were subsequently dropped after his father, who was wealthy, paid the victim a settlement. So, Miss Tina, we have a guy who uses a rape charge to sound better than what he intentionally did. What are your thoughts or feeling on uh, Issei Sagawa so far? My thoughts are that he is like maybe a lot of men from that time period and that they don't necessarily take rape seriously. Not that it was something that they thought was okay, but that it would it was something that was not seen as that bad. You know, it was because let's face it, it was just just not been very long ago that the sentences for rape were not that harsh, really, depending on what state. We've made a lot of progress. The thing is that I don't, I, I think that this was what, the 80s when this was going on? Yeah, this is the 80s in Japan. Yeah, and I think, think, think about the region, think about the time period. I, I don't think it's so far-fetched to think that the people, the people taking his statement would have been like, oh, you were going to rape her. I think that they would have been like, this is something that they see all the time. They don't see people all the time eating other people, wanting to eat other people. Does that make sense? Yeah. I got to be honest. If I'm the police officer on scene and you said, hey, I'm breaking in. I broke into her house because I was attracted to her and, you know, maybe I was going to see how things went. I could buy that story. Doesn't mean I like it, but I understand it. Nowhere in my brain would it have leapt to what we're about to talk to. So I, I could see him using that. And it's also, I think, important, Ben, to point out this. So this happened when he was studying for his master's degree in literature because he, you know, as we said, as a kid, he was in love with books and that's what he wanted to be involved with. So he gets out of this. OK, and I don't know anything about the court system in, in Japan, let alone in 1981. But apparently he got scot free. No charges, not on his record. It disappears. So. 
fast forward a couple of years, he decides he is going to get his PhD in literature. And due to wealthy parents, he travels to Paris and goes to the Sorbonne, which is a university there, to study literature again. So he met a 25-year-old Dutch student by the name of René Haravelt, and they stuck up a friendship, and he kind of slowly gained her trust, and they were in some of the same classes and, and taught literature together. What Haravelt didn't know and what Sagawa has admitted to is that multiple times, he said almost every night, he would bring back a prostitute or sex worker to his house with the intent of eating them. It is important to gauge this guy's mental status that he never intended to murder anybody. His whole entire goal was the consumption of human flesh. And he couldn't think of a way to get a person to let him eat part of them without the murder, which I know is a crappy turn of events for the person that's getting eaten. But I just think it's very interesting that he was like, no, 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 I, I didn't want to hurt them, but I had to to get to them. And so he multiple times had brought prostitutes to his apartment, but was never able. He actually even said he had a gun in his hand pointed at them, but he could just never pull the trigger. So fast forward, it's June 1981. Sagawa talks to his friend Harvelt and says, hey, we have some work we need to do. I need to do some uh, translating, I believe, for some poetry. And if you come over to my apartment, we can start working on it. On that night, he shot her in the neck from behind, and she died immediately. It's reported through his interrogation that he passed out uh, from the act of actually shooting her. Yeah, that's one of the things he said to the interrogators is he was in such shock having actually shot a person and seeing them dead that he passed out. Like, he, he was just not mentally prepared for the consequence of what he did. After he came to, he did think about calling an ambulance. He talked himself out of it, saying that he'd waited 32 years for this. He then proceeded to rape her lifeless body. Yes. So, again, going to Sagawa's mental state is he was 4'9". He had multiple physical deformities. Clearly, he did not have any large stature. Harvelt, on the other hand, was 5'10 or 5'11, depending on which you know report I've read. Very tall, physically attractive, beautiful. And he felt that the act of having sex with her body and then consuming some of her flesh would then give him some of those traits or powers as the way he looked at it. So, again, I, I am not defending it in any way. I'm just saying it, it's it's an odd case where he committed the murder, but not for the sake of the murder. He committed the murder so that he could do these other things because he knew nobody else would let him. Miss Tina, how are you feeling about a, a rifle shot? I also want to point out, how did nobody hear this? He lives in an apartment building. A rifle is not a quiet instrument. But it does not specify a caliber, or at least I haven't been able to find one. And so regardless, though, I don't care if it was a 22, that thing is going to make a noise like you're going to hear this. So I just find it really odd. And with your extensive history of covering crime scenes, what, what do you think about this so far? The first thing I'm thinking is that this probably wouldn't have happened had he been 
fully prosecuted for breaking into that woman's home. And the fact that he did say that he had intended to rape her is is probably what saved him. Because imagine what would have happened had he said what he really intended to do. They would have probably taken that a lot more you know, more seriously. I'm sorry, but if it had been a man and he had broken in with the intention of of consuming them, killing them and eating them, I just believe he would have been in prison and he would never have had this opportunity. So that's the first thing that kind of just flies all over me, you know. I think you're right. I think if he had said that he was going to murder somebody so that he could consume their flesh, the Japanese authorities would have absolutely kept him in jail or a mental institution. But since he didn't and the girl agreed to drop charges because of the settlement, Issa Sagawa is out walking around in the Sorbonne in France. And then now Hartveld is dead. Yeah. And this was kind of back in the day. So it's, it's hard to, you know, I was a child when all this was going on. You guys probably weren't even born. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's, it's hard to kind of gauge what the mindset would have been or what I, f- I feel like people nowadays are less shocked by things. Oh, correct. You know, like, yeah, no, you no. know, back then you didn't have the internet and you weren't just constantly bombarded with, you know, all sorts of details, gory details of all these things. And so I'm sure that this would have just sent people over the edge, you know, just like what this is unheard of, you know, it's, I don't know. I feel like it would, have, it would have, especially in Japan. It's really interesting you said that because actually the time and some of the facts coming out about this case and the sensationalism around it does play a part in the story at the end. So you you actually hit that you know nail on the head. So after the murder, Sagawa gets a butcher knife and starts to consume flesh from Hartvelt's body. I mean, I don't know how graphic we want to get into this, but mostly he consumes uh, breast, buttocks, and facial tissue. Uh, he consumes some of it raw, and he consumes some of it cooked. He did. He did say, and I saw in one interview where the very first bite, he as soon as he got to the the red meat, as he called it, he put it right into his mouth, and he chewed up raw human flesh and decided that he needed to do more. He also took photographs of his meals and then he froze them for later. And I will say that in regards to these photographs, they have been leaked online through different court cases and through different things. Myself working in forensics and dealing with dead bodies on a routine basis, one or two pictures into it. And I'm like, you know what? That's enough for me. I mean, they're pretty grotesque. I've seen plenty of things and these are, incredibly graphic and then it's it's i think the personal tie not that i knew harvelt or sagawa or any of these people but i know the story so knowing the story and then seeing the picture gives it that depth that i think you would find these disgusting in the first place but to to know the story of how it happened just adds a whole new element to it after consuming harvelt's flesh He's like, hmm, I really got to do something with this body. It's time to get her out of my house. By the way, two days. He kept her in his house for two days, consuming parts of flesh and chopping off various parts of her body. He comes up with the plan of, okay, I'm going to chop up the remaining body parts into smaller sections, goes out and buys two suitcases, and then stuffs 
the body parts into the suitcase. Now, this is also another part I thought you would find interesting, Miss Tina, is because he's not very good at it. He does absolutely nothing to keep the bodily fluids inside the suitcase. So as he calls a taxi cab to go to a secluded lake area, because that's where he decided to drop the body parts off to get away with this crime, he is literally dragging suitcases that are dripping blood from them all the way out to the taxi cab. The taxi cab driver actually said, what do you got? Dead bodies in here because it was so heavy when he was helping him load them into the trunk of his taxi. Little did he know he was correct. Yeah, and I've read that as he so he got out of the taxi and then they were heavy and he's very small and so he's trying to to, trying to drag them along and then he sat them down at one point and then walked kind of walked ahead and was just sort of admiring the view and somebody came up behind him and was like hey hey are these your suitcases and he turns around and he's like no, I don't know whose suitcases those are. I'm just like, are you kidding me? And so, of course, the, the person is going to go, what does he think? They're going to go, like, okay, and then turn around and leave? No, they're going to be like, well, okay, I, huh, I guess I'll look. Maybe there's a million dollars in here. I don't know. They're going to open it up and, of course, get the, the shock of their life. I think it's a testament to how little criminal knowledge apparently this guy had or how privileged his life must have been because he just assumed that having bloodstained hands and clothing right next to the blood dripping suitcases that nobody was going to make be able to match two and two but they did well he thought he could just wander off and nobody come after him yeah, well, he miscalculated because apparently the French authorities, and I have a lot of problems with France on certain issues, no offense to French listeners, but their police uh, departments in France, they actually have a, an amazing national French police department. They're really good at their job. And guess what? They didn't take very long to put two and two together. So Issei Sagawa is almost immediately apprehended. His apartment searched and the buttload of evidence he took pictures as ben pointed out throughout the process there is absolutely no defensible position that this guy can take and he knows it when please questioned him his admission was quote i killed her to eat her flesh unquote tom let's take a break here and let's talk about one of our sponsors that i know Tina enjoys as well. EchoHealth.com. Tina, what are your thoughts on your Echo stethoscope? Oh, man, you guys know I love my Echo stethoscope. I could talk about this all day. I use it every single time I go to work. What I love about my the stethoscope is they they sent me the Cardiology 4 with their Echo device, core device, you know, t attached to it. So you can use it as just the regular Litman or you can use the device. But what I love to do to people is to be like, hey, because people are, it's kind of obvious. They're like, hey, what stethoscope is that? It looks so cool. And then I love to put it on someone and go, listen, and like not have the button pushed and have them listen. And they're like, oh, wow, that's great. That's such a good stethoscope. And then I'm like, hold on. And then I push the button and they, it's, I swear, the, it, it never fails. Their eyes will light up and they'll just be like, what in the heck? I have to have one of these. It is literally the best stethoscope. I will never, ever use another one. It's awesome. Literally, I've done the exact same thing. I've said, here, listen to it. Now listen to it with the 40 times amplification on, the noise canceling abilities. It is just fantastic. And like she said, and I completely agree, I cannot imagine in any way using 
any other stethoscope. If you want to find out more about Echo Health, you can check out their website. It's echohealth.com, E-K-O-Health.com. And make sure you use code JSV for $50 off your order. All right, Tom, let's get right. into the uh, the legal case here. Yeah, not much. That's that. That's what it is. So he yeah. was held in a French mental institution for two years while he was awaiting trial. When it was time for his trial, a French judge ruled him legally insane and unfit for trial and dropping their charges and ordering him to be indefinitely held in a mental institution. While he was being held at that institution, a Japanese journalist, which I did not find the name of, but it's kind of inconsequential, comes over and interviews him where he gives a candid and unrelenting recount of the murder and consumption of Harvelt's body. It's called In the Fog, and it's from his point of view. And like I said, it's completely open. He does not try and color it in any way. She goes back to or they go back to Japan. The book or article is published and becomes a hit. And then it becomes a minor international hit, and people start talking about Issei Sagawa. Somewhere along at this point, the French authorities go, we don't really want this guy in France anymore. We need to get him out. So here's where some of the sticking points happen, though. And I think this is, you know, some really interesting things to talk about. So apparently in French law, when a case is dropped, the court documents are sealed. They are in no way attainable or openable. So when Sagawa is deported to Japan, even though everybody knows what happened because they wrote a stinking article about it and published it. Japanese courts cannot do anything about it. Crime did not happen on their land. There is no court proceedings and there is no evidence. So they admit him to a mental institution in Japan. A psychiatrist judged him to be sane. And because, like Tom said, there was uh, the charges were dropped and sealed in France, there's no legal grounds to hold him in a mental institution because they have judged him to be sane. He was able to check himself out August 12th, 1986, and he's remained free since then. Kina, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. It's not surprising to me that when it was to his when it was to his benefit that he was able to pass that psychiatric evaluation when he was in France and he was hospitalized. They were saying, "Oh no, he he's not mentally fit to stand trial or whatever. He's mentally ill." And then when he's then sent back to Japan, then there all of a sudden he's able to pass the evaluation. It tells me that he's. He's obviously very intelligent. Yeah, he was working on his PhD. Right. I mean, they don't give those away. I just think that he knew exactly what he was doing. He was very manipulative and quite disgusting. And he had no remorse, clearly, for anything that he did, even taking a life. I mean, I would have to say there had to be a degree of mental illness, obviously, for him to have the urges that he was having and, and the this lifelong obsession. But he knew right from wrong. And he, he, he knew that he shouldn't kill someone. He knew that he should keep that under control and not and, and fight the urge to do that and not take a life. And yet he did anyway. I also wonder with his parents being wealthy and with him being back in Japan where they could potentially influence things, if there wasn't, you know, donations made to this hospital or whatever the case may be to render him sane so that he would be able to be released. I had never thought about that, but considering that we know just five years prior that all the charges were dropped because of a settlement, 
it does seem like the Japanese court system would lend itself to that type of coercion. Like somebody could make that. And again, I am not trying to make anybody in Japan mad. I'm just saying, like, let's look at let's look at the facts. You know, you've just alienated all of your Japanese listeners. Thanks. Well, you know what? I mean, I've done way worse things to piss people off on my other podcast. So I, I just I don't feel like that's going to be the the bullet that, you know, ships the or sinks the ship. But I think it's two things that you talked about, Tina, that were things that I had thought about, too. First of all, I 100 percent agree. And I don't think anybody could read this without acknowledging that there is some degree of mental illness. However, one of the things that keeps coming up to me, though, is his consistency. He never, even when he was in jail, possibly about to get prosecuted in France, he gave an open account of the murder and butchering of this person. I agree that he is smart and manipulative, but wow. I mean, he he clearly was not afraid of putting it out on the line because he certainly did. Also, you said it and he has said it. He is not repentant in any way. As a matter of fact, as Ben talked about earlier in the show, he doesn't even look at it as a bad thing. He looks at it as a sexual fetish. Like, I want to eat her. She has flesh. I want to eat that flesh. I don't see what the problem is to this day is unrepentant because he doesn't see it as a bad thing. Well, because he obviously doesn't value her life. No, uh, no, clearly doesn't value her life. But I I think this is where we have, where we could have the discussion. Is this affluenza? Is this because of his, you know, rich upbringing that he doesn't look at other people as having their own value? Or is it truly just, he is so mentally ill that He is sociopathic to the point where other people's feelings and thoughts do not register. That's a question way bigger than I think we can, you know, dissolve tonight. But it certainly does raise a lot of questions about the human condition that a person can do all this and openly be like, no, I don't feel bad in any way because to him it wasn't bad. And he knows what he did. He just doesn't think it's wrong. And I just like, wow, that is that's a lot to that's a lot to unpack. Well, and since his release, he's also kind of become a minor celebrity in Japan. Uh, He's been on television shows. He's written 20 books, a lot of them kind of detailing either graphically or even in like graphic novels of his crime. Um, The other one I thought was kind of odd is he also had appeared in some movies, including soft porn, where he was filmed biting actresses. I found the most (laughs) absurd was a magazine hired him to be a restaurant critic and did several restaurant and food reviews for a magazine in Japan, which look, if you were the editor of that magazine, you know, what's going to sell. You have a cannibal reviewing restaurants for you. I mean, from a business point, it's it's brilliant, but from a ethical standpoint, it's disgusting. And you know, it's it's hard to to say bad on them for doing what they knew would sell magazines. But yeah, this guy clearly he never felt bad. But then on top of it, people are re- rewarding him for what he did. Yeah, it's such a dishonor to his victim. It doesn't honor her life at all. In fact, it just it, it's it's so disgusting. Not just him, but all the people that participated in all of this activity, you know, afterwards. 
felt like that was appropriate to do and it was okay, you know, to give him a pass on his behavior and treat it like, I mean, basically they were treating it as he was saying, as a fetish or as, you know, something to, I don't know, something to laugh at. And it's as if he did get a pass. He did have, I have read that he had a stroke and has not been able to move, I guess, or move, get around on his own. Yeah, 2013 had a stroke and was permanently disabled from that. Yeah. So at least there's that. Yeah, I mean, at least the universe in some way or his own body is finally betraying him and, and giving him some sort of punishment. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he is a cannibal that is walking the streets and has openly said if he could, he would absolutely devour another human being. That's what I wanted to end with and, and discuss. He has been quoted as saying the desire to eat people becomes so intense around June when women start wearing less and showing more skin. What I am saying is I can't bear the thought of leaving this life without ever tasting the dairy air that I saw this morning or her thighs. I don't think I'm going to be visiting Japan in June anytime soon. Yeah. I got to be honest out of all the times I have talked and spoke with Tina. I think that's literally the first time I saw her like, make like the gag reflex. I mean, we've talked about some gross stuff, but that's the first time I saw her go to something. I think it's his age and upbringing. And I, and, and Tina hit on this before. Do you notice he blamed the women? Yeah, exactly. As the first thing I thought of when you said that, Oh great. Blame them for how they dress. Yeah. If you, if you weren't wearing a skirt, I wouldn't have murdered you and ate you like, no, nah, I don't think that's the problem there. Issei. So I hope I'm kind of pronouncing his name wrong. So if he ever hears this, he'll be mad. I'm like, no, nope. Nope, sorry. Is cannibalism a sexual fetish? That's a really interesting question. Normally, I would say no. However, in this specific case, and I think it was actually documented by some of the psychiatrists in Japan, I I think it is. I think the eating of the flesh, because, and he mentions that multiple times in interviews and in the fog and what you just said in interrogation, it, he, he talks about the eating of the flesh as orgasmic. And so for him in this specific case, I believe that the cannibalism is the fulfillment of that sexual desire. I don't think he's hungry, you know, like, let's face it. Like, People back in the day, if you know, like, or the movie Alive, you know, the guys that got trapped in the Andes, they had to do cannibalism because if they didn't, they were dead. And so that was the decision that they had to make and live with. This guy was purely doing it out of for fulfillment and joy that he was going to get sexual gratification from. So normally I would say no, but in this case, yes. Tina, is cannibalism a fetish? I think he was honest when he said uh, that about himself. I think that it he felt like it was, and if he would know better than anyone, right? I mean, what is a fetish other than just some weird thing that causes you, you know, to have those sexual feelings, and you, you can't, you know, have that without having this weird whatever it is that turns you on. I think it became an obsession for him. Maybe he needed that. I, I don't know. For some people, I think a fetish is some, is something like they, they need that, whatever it is. I think I watched a Law and Order or something like a long time ago, and it featured Henry Winkler. And I think, was it like roaches or something? It's so weird. <laughs> I don't know. So, so I, 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 yeah, I do think it probably, I think it's it can be a fetish. I never try and 
I shouldn't say I never tried. I never would shame a person for whatever, whatever is what turned you on. I am happy for you. Go do whatever you want. However, if that fetish involves harming another human being is when we start to have to have those conversations about what is acceptable, what is not. And I'm not talking about role play. I'm talking about people that legitimately want to cause unwanted pain in another human being. And again, there are sexual fetishes that in, in, include those. In this case, though, I again, I, I find it odd, and I'm going to say the word fascinating, but I don't want someone to think like I'm enjoying it. I just think I do think it's fascinating, though. All of this was a means to the end. All he really wanted was to eat somebody and enjoy it. So he had to harm them. He had to do all this stuff, but he didn't want to. He just wanted the end product, and unfortunately, it involved those multiple steps. Ben, what do you feel? I, again, I'm going to be with you. I think that it, in this case, albeit still a crime, it was a fetish. And I don't think that you can take the crime out of the fe- I mean, I think you can still be a fetish and be a crime, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, I think in this case, for this particular person, whatever the case may be, yes, it was definitely to fulfill a fetish. If you like hearing more about us and want to reach out and visit with us some more, you can find us. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on TikTok. All will continue to monitor. Miss Tina, what do you want to plug? Well, you can find me at my podcast at goodnursebadnurse.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> so for those that are new to this show and have not heard Miss Tina with us on just some podcast for advanced practitioners, that's an ongoing joke about her doing her social media shout out. So that's why I was laughing is just, oh, I know how much she loves it. So, <laughs> um, but no, last word for me is I really think if nobody has been interviewing and dissecting this guy's brains from a psychiatric point of view, they absolutely should. He's got to be able to provide some kind of insight into the minds of people that are willing to do this. And here's the best part for a researcher. He wants to talk like this is not a person you'd have to interrogate or build rapport or take a lot of time to get involved with. He will openly talk to anybody about what he did and how he did it. So if people are not or had not taken advantage of that, I think that's also one of the things that's sad is because we could have learned something that maybe could help prevent this from happening with somebody else. And if we lost that chance because nobody wanted to talk to this guy, I find that a real loss. And again, as, as Tina said earlier, also the Harvelt family, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I can't imagine what it would be like for the person that murdered my daughter to not only be walking around, but to profit from it. Like that would be an awfully hard pill to swallow. I agree with you. Go ahead. Argue with me on that one, Ben. No, there's no <laughs> argument. You summed it up perfectly. On that note, make sure you turn it in next time for tantalizing tale or something creepy on. We'll continue to monitor.